dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. Welcome back to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked. Today, we are going to be decoding the Syrian conflict and looking at the future implications for the region with Bardia. So, Bardia, we'll start off. Can you tell everyone a bit about yourself? What do you do and how have you got to where we are? Uh, My name is Bardia. I worked for two years at a human rights law firm focusing on the Middle East and Iran specifically. I worked there as a translator. Uh, I currently attend George Mason University, and I'm studying government and international politics. Um, yeah. So we're going to look at the kind of the current state of the Syrian conflict. That's the first thing I'll ask you. Is, so how has the Syrian conflict kind of evolved since its inception? What are the kind of current dynamics which have changed the conflict's nature? Well, the current dynamics are actually quite a bit dialed down from what people expect when they hear about Syria. Um, the kind of warfare that's going on has essentially came to a standstill. Uh, all sides are absolutely beaten up. All sides kind of want to stop the fight. But the major issue is Turkey wants to pull out. And if Turkey pulls out, the Free Syrian Army in the north loses all their aid that they have. Uh, mm. The SDF is under threat from Turkey. If Turkey and Assad ever come to any kind of agreement, Assad oil uh, owes about 50 billion, according to current estimates, to Iran alone. So Bashar al-Assad is economically devastated, but he also does not want to give any kind of concessions to the opposition. So you have a dictator that doesn't want to relinquish any power. He's still maintaining a state of fear. You have beaten up insurgents to the north that they have infighting and they also have a sponsor that really does not want to be there anymore. And then you have the SDF, which is under threat from the north and the south. They're militarily allied with the Assad regime against Turkey right now, but they have very publicly and frequently announced that this is not any kind of political concession and that they do not have any political agreements with the Assad regime. Yeah, they've certainly kind of meandered to a stalemate like this it's not like there's been a, agreements it's just kind of naturally slowed with no concessions it's quite a good way to put it uh one of the biggest things with the conflict right now is the fact that in turkey uh, according to recent polling around 70 percent of the populace there wants an immediate pullout from syria but that would involve uh, negotiations with the Assad regime and Assad right now, his relations, especially in the region, is improving by quite an alarming state. A lot of regional countries that used to pour weapons to the opposition or used to cut relations to Assad because of the civil war, they've begun to normalize relations with the regime, which kind of puts... He recently appeared at the Gulf Conference, didn't he? Yeah. Which is a big step. That does not help the situation either. It certainly doesn't. So 
one of the examples we just mentioned there was Turkey. How do you think the Turkey, recent Turkish elections impacted all the goings on? Well, one surprising thing about the recent Turkish election was when um, some of the electorate talked to Erdogan in some of his speeches. He very publicly talked against sending back uh, Syrian refugees to Syria. He said that it was un-Islamic, that it wasn't right, while the opposition had a very send the Syrians home, the conflict is over, we must normalize relations with the Assad regime immediately uh, kind of rhetoric. And it is kind of the fact that Erdogan won while meandering on a subject for 70 to 80% of the electorate is pro enacting that policy is um, very interesting. Because right now, Erdogan, although he's still announced that he does want to start negotiations with the Assad regime, the Assad regime really does not want to negotiate with Erdogan until yeah. they've completely pulled out of northern Syria. It's certainly interesting to see how that will develop, because I think now Erdogan's kind of been, he's back in, or not back in power, he's still in power. I think his rhetoric will kind of amp up and we'll see him trying to kind of consolidate power a bit more in the region so it'll be interesting to see how they play off each other and the conflict in syria although it's a internal politics risk for erdogan it's a very hard power benefit to him because we've seen him uh, employ some of the trained uh, militants in northern syria to azerbaijan to libya in order to mm push some of its regional ambitions. So Erdogan, although he has a domestic push to try and negotiate with Assad as soon as possible, he has a hard power incentive not to immediately do that. Mm. Definitely. So I think uh, the world kind of started paying attention to the Syrian civil war with the front against ISIS. I think is generally accepted. So do you think we can say right now that ISIS has been defeated? No, no, absolutely not. They are, even if um, some people claim that ISIS in Syria has been defeated, the thing is ISIS, um, it's essentially the McDonald's of uh, (laughs) terrorist organization. It has transformed into a ISIS core, and then it has its offshoots into different branches of ISIS. So what they do is you need to control some kind of territory, you need to have a set amount of soldiers, you need to have an elected leader, and then you need to pledge public allegiance to ISIS. And then ISIS core decides, okay, if they'll allow that insurgent group to raise the banner of ISIS or not. So this has caused a lot of insurgent groups within Africa specifically, because in the Philippines, where they had a um, strong ISIS presence, they were completely defeated after they tried to take a state. But right now what ISIS has been doing is it's been reaching out to a lot of insurgent groups within Africa and uh, telling them we can give you a international name, we can give you some of our strategies, we can give you our flag, we can give you a sort of religion, religious excuse to continue your actions. And that has caused a lot of, even if like ISIS in Mozambique does not share the ideological interests of ISIS core, they still do use the same tactics, the same name, and they use the 
reputation ISIS has internationally in order to project their power within the region, even when it comes to other insurgent groups. If you're a small insurgent gang, if you're a tribal gang, if you're a another insurgent group, if ISIS is appearing in the region and going into cities and cutting entire people's heads off, you're going to be a lot more um, worried than if it was just another random regional insurgent group. Certainly. And a few of the episodes, if, for example, the one with Mamut Senges that I recorded recently, we went into a few of the different uh, ISIS offshoots, like the uh, Boko Haram and Abu Sayyaf and Mozambique and the Caucasus. And once you really get into the spider web, it's baffling how extensive it is. It really does just go on forever. Yeah, which is that's. Worrying. That's what's interesting about ISIS specifically, because compared to Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda is very picky on which groups it allows to um, like announce allegiance to Al-Qaeda and become an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. While mm. ISIS, it, it, again, it's, it's like McDonald's. It's trying to go as many places as possible because in Syria, their presence has been limited. Uh, there's still a sizable amount of ISIS prisoners within northern Syria, within the camps there, and that's one of the major reasons the U.S. hasn't completely pulled out of Syria. Um, mm. The U.S. has significantly reduced its presence in the Middle East because it's changing its focus from the Middle East and counterterrorism to conventional warfare, especially when it comes to the Pacific and China. But the presence of thousands and thousands of ISIS prisoners in northern Syria, where there is still a uh, large ISIS push in order to free them from the prisons and restart their campaign. We can't say that ISIS has been defeated in Syria, but we can say that they've been significantly weakened. Hmm. Yeah, that's certainly a fair analysis. So to, to add on to that, what lessons do you think have been learned from the fight against ISIS that could like inform future counterterrorism efforts against similar organizations? Well, I'd say uh, one of the biggest lessons we learned from the fight against ISIS, uh, especially in the initial stages of the insurgency, is how much they used social media. Like there were reports that ISIS was using PlayStation and their networks in order to create parties in order to get people to join them from outside the country. Uh, the large push they've had for foreign donors, foreign involvement. We, we haven't really had that from the West. Like uh, when there was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, there was absolutely a lot more regional volunteers going on. But uh, the fact that ISIS really tried pushing for economically and culturally disenfranchised groups outside the country and kind of in, uh, inviting them to join them. Uh, one very specific thing that uh, we've seen ISIS and a lot more Islamic insurgent groups do is uh, they provide a kind of pseudo family. So they go around either regionally or internationally if someone uh, feels insecure in their identity, if they feel insecure economically, anything like that. They're like, come to us and we'll give you uh, something secure. We'll give you a secure structure. Mm. It is, has been another textbook example of uh, vulnerable people being groomed into extreme situations, I think is a good way of saying it. But like a lot of the cases I've seen, especially from, from the UK, the people that have gone over have been a certain type of people, like very vulnerable young people 
so it's interesting that that's the development of how it's being advertised almost and that's one of the kind of sad elements to this whole situation uh, if you look at the rate of foreign volunteers it's a lot more people from europe than people from america because mm. america has a kind of more well they're more picky with who they let in but it, it's also the fact that culturally america is more accepting of foreign groups coming to them compared to like france because in france uh a lot of immigrants from the middle east they were put in not very good situations. The laicite system kind of was aggressive to them from the start, which made these people feel like they're not really French. It, it disenfranchised them from like getting a French sense of identity, which then that insecurity caused more radical groups to be able to say, yes, you are not French. Yes, they mm -hmm. are the enemy. We are not, we are your friends. We are your family, come to us. Like, I think that's definitely something that's been learned, but I'm not sure if every every country, say, in the European Union or the West has taken it on board properly, unfortunately. Yes, sadly not. The counterterrorism focus of countries has been a lot more hard power than soft power, and especially mm. when it comes to America, we're seeing a... Uh, backtrack on that. America is assuming a lot more soft power approach to the war of terror than it had uh, at the beginning of the war on terror. Um, one kind of sad and yet interesting lesson that America specifically learned was when it came to the use of torture. Uh, America, according to congressional findings even, uh, the CIA's push for the use of torture was not effective at all. Uh, the FBI already had a set tactic or they would send in an interrogator from the same culture, from the same religion that spoke uh, the same language or a, a language from a nearby country. And they would establish a cultural connection to the other person and they would try to negotiate with them in order to get information out of them. And that was from congressional findings, a lot more effective than beating someone up in an airplane for like 18 hours when uh, you actually mistook them for a higher rank than they actually are. And you think that they have information that they don't. Because within insurgent groups or within any group, there's only so much information that one single individual has. So at some mm. point you run out of things to get. And um, in one of the uses of torture, um, one of the Al-Qaeda operatives that, Amer uh, that the CIA was trying to get information from sent the CIA on a $5 million goose chase for um, Somalians in Montana, if I'm not wrong. I don't remember the exact ethnic group, but uh, the operative was like, yes, yes, we have an operation for uh, this ethnic group in Montana, and we're trying to uh, get some of the people from that community. And Montana has like an extremely small population of them. So you had the FBI and the CIA just pouring resources into Montana, trying to search for this like hidden Al-Qaeda cell. There was none. And they were like, we found nothing. It was like, yeah, I was lying. You were torturing me. <laughs> but I imagine the CIA has a lot more fun torturing people. They probably uh, enjoy that option. Not anymore, thankfully. The CIA's uh, torture program, uh, after the congressional findings, they were like, okay, this is not good internationally. <laughs> this is not good domestically. So they've stopped that. Interesting. So 
do you think it's fair to say that it's a proxy war, the Syrian civil war? Absolutely. Um, especially when it comes to Iran, um, Assad is a Alawite, which is a uh, offshoot of Shiism, while the majority of the Syrian population are Sunni Muslims. So uh, you see this ideological push, especially for Iran in order to keep Assad in power. And that's not uh, like putting into account the fact that Assad's father was one of Iran's only allies when it came to the Iran-Iraq war. The fact that Iran needs Syria in order to have access to Lebanon and smuggle weapons to Hezbollah, whether it comes to Syria's ideological battle against Israel uh, in like the Golan Heights and the whole uh, Syrian nationalist thing about trying to take over the Levant. Uh, when it comes to Russia, Russia, again, has a lot of material connections to Syria, whether it's oil, whether it's weapons, whether it's just a regional ally. Uh, Turkey, also Erdogan, has a lot of ideological ties to the Islamist groups in the north. Uh, that's why you see like HDS, which was an offshoot or is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, depending on who you talk to. Um, and they've tried to announce themselves as a reformed group that's not very radical anymore and a lot more of a military presence than an ideological one. Uh, whether it's Saudi Arabia who's trying to prevent Iran and their foothold in Syria from increasing, it's definitely a lot more of a regional proxy war than an international one. Uh, because especially when it came to the start, uh, despite some popular beliefs, um, the Obama administration did not want a fall of Assad. Um, even under the Trump administration, Trump once proposed assassinating Assad to his uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Mattis, and Mattis immediately shut it down. It was like, don't even think <laughs> about it. Uh, so America, from the start, they did not want a fall of Assad. They did not want Assad to die and cause another Libya. Uh, they mm -hmm. wanted us to give concessions to the opposition, maybe peacefully stand down and stuff like that, which is why you saw an incremental supply to uh, insurgent groups, whether it was um, not listening to some um, internal pushes for like a no-fly zone over Syria, and it was a lot more of a hands-off incremental support to groups within Syria because they didn't want Assad to immediately lose, immediately fall apart. So it, it, it's way more of a regional thing than an international thing, uh, especially when it comes to Turkey versus Russia. Uh, Turkey has a lot of interests in the Caucasus. Russia also used to have a monopoly over mm -hmm. the Caucasus, whether it was Azerbaijan, Armenia, but now Azerbaijan is assuming a lot more ethnic nationalists language which causes them to get close to turkey if you um ever pay attention to some of the speeches erdogan and um erdogan has in azerbaijan he really loves referring to azerbaijan as brother azerbaijan yeah. or aliyev stuff like that so the turkish nationalism a... coming back a little bit isn't it coming uh, back sadly, into fashion yeah. <laughs> So what are some of the other risks of having so many regional and international powers all on the ground in Syria? Well, in 2022, the UN actually um, talked about that. Uh, the UN expressed fears that although the Syrian civil war has come to a stalemate right now, that it has an extremely high risk of flaring up again. 
thankfully, we've seen Russia pull out some weapons and the internal situation in Turkey may push for Erdogan to also push back some support, but there absolutely still is a internal uh, security argument for Turkey when it comes to the YPG in uh, northern Syria, uh, that Turkey wants to say, oh, we're defeating the PKK in Syria, and to have a uh, Tur another Turkish intervention in the region. Uh, the rebel groups also, although they, they've stopped a lot of major offenses against Assad. It's just a bunch of skirmishes in uh, the region right now. It, it's still, if Russia completely pulls out of Syria, they want to put more resources into Ukraine. If the internal situation in Iran further deter deteriorates and the regime pulls back a lot of their forces, which we've seen them do uh, when the Islamic theocracy's power over Iranians start to diminish, they pull back some IRGC resources from Syria, from Iraq, in order to act as a ideological uh, support structure. Because uh, we've seen uh, in the recent protests in Iran that there was some internal fighting within the security forces where there were people uh, disincentivized from pursuing what the government has told them to do. Uh, so the government started offering more cash prizes. Uh, there was some evidence of security forces being forced to take drugs in order to make them more violent and more um, ruthless towards the protesters. And Iran absolutely, even the clerics commonly, uh, when they're giving their uh, Friday uh, prayer speeches and they want to threaten the Iranian populace. They're like, if you guys do not want to support the revolution, we have forces in Afghanistan, we have forces in Iraq, we have forces in Syria that do want to support the revolution. And we have no issue calling them into the country in order to uh, protect our rule. Mm. So the situation in Syria, although it's slowed down, is still absolutely a ticking time bomb. Uh, Assad, he has done no reforms. He has done nothing to kind of address the initial reasons for the revolution. The security systems are still incredibly brutal. Um, according to Freedom House, uh, Syria is the least free nation in the world. It is a zero out of 100, which even North Korea is like a two or four out of 100. So us, it's That's still certainly pursuing... not good to be a zero then. Yeah. So us, he's still pursuing absolute totality, absolute power, absolute control, no concessions, no nothing. And it doesn't matter how many people you kill. It doesn't matter how much you ruin your own country. If the reasons why people rose up are there in the first place, especially when you've took a hit to the kind of psychological warfare you've had over the citizens, that this is all there will be, that there, uh, that there is no chance for you guys to do anything else. When a large portion of your country is still occupied by rebels, you can't really keep that uh, psychological hold over your citizens. So being such a convoluted proxy war between so many different factions, what are the kind of humanitarian consequences that have gone along with that? Well, Syria is absolutely devastated right now. There's still a large uh, Syrian refugee population, especially when it comes to Turkey. There's a lot of internal hostility to Syrian refugees. Yet Erdogan is using Syrian refugees uh, the same way Gaddafi did as a 
uh, kind of soft power weapon against Europe. Uh, we saw them like stranding Syrian refugees to force Greece to take them in, while Europe has had a strong right-wing push, right-wing populist push, especially recently, uh, which is incredibly hostile towards refugees. You have these large um, threatened populations, whether internationally or within Syria, that they're just stuck in limbo, uh, whether it's food insecurities, uh, Syria, especially, again, uh, recent estimates to Iran alone put them at 50, mil uh, 50 billion in debt. So you have these you have an economically ruined country that is absolutely in debt to its regional and international allies. Uh, you have a dictatorship that is still torturing people that has no issue killing civilians. So the humanitarian crisis in the region is still essentially the same as it was from the beginning of the war. And um, the fact that a lot of more regional powers that have entered into Syria have enjoyed complete impunity, um, whether it's Wagner, whether it's the IRGC, um, they have had no repercussions to their kind of use of terror against Syrian citizens. Mm. And that takes me on perfectly, actually. Like, how, how, how have groups like, or say PMCs like Wagner, how have they impacted the, the war? What what have their dynamics been like on the ground? Well, um, if we look at Wagner and the way they act internationally, even outside of Syria, if we look at, look look to Mali, um, we can see that Wagner really likes intentionally targeting civilians, and they um, use that as psychological warfare against whatever group they're fighting against. So um, you have that issue, and the fact that um, Wagner doesn't really have a set hierarchical structure because although they do get their orders from Vladimir Putin from the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense, there is some conflicts between the leadership of Wagner and them and the fact that although Wagner is an arm of the Russian military, Wagner is not legally an arm of the Russian military. So there is um, not really a internationally set agreed upon definition for what Wagner is. Um, I think the State Department recently announced uh, Wagner as a uh, transnational criminal organization, which is one step away from announcing them as a terrorist organization, but for political reasons, uh, they have not done that yet. Uh, there's also ethical considerations uh, when it comes to transparency, uh, accountability, and adherence to moral principles, uh, because Wagner is a profit-driven entity. Um, their actions within a war is not really to end it. It is much more um, profitable for Wagner in order to uh, prolong the war for as much as possible in order to maximize the amount of money and training and weapons they get out of any uh, set conflict. And uh, again, there's the privatization of warfare, especially in um, Syria. There's a lot of non-state actors, which accountability, international accountability is an absolute disaster. The legal considerations is complex. Um, it's 
kind of hard to determine if uh, groups like Wagner are lawful combatants or if they're um, belligerents or if they're privileged belligerents, they're non-privileged belligerents. Uh, in order to be a privileged belligerent, you have to discriminate between civilians and non-civilians, which uh, we've seen Wagner not do, which if... Many times. The, yeah. If the war was to end in Syria in whatever way, and if there was a push internationally for uh, some legal pushback on the actions of various groups within Syria, uh, that muddies the water for how Wagner would and should be treated. Because uh, there are four categories when it comes to um the laws of armed conflict, there is non-combatants, which under absolutely no circumstances are you legally allowed to target them. Uh, there is privileged belligerents, which is um, groups that adhere to the laws of the LOAC and should be treated as prisoners of war. There is unprivileged belligerents, which is uh, armed groups that don't listen to the LOAC and don't follow the LOAC, and therefore they would not be technically considered prisoners of war and they would not get uh, the privileges given to them by POW status. And then there's the armed forces of any state group engaging in that conflict. And so Wagner, they have three categories that you could technically uh, say they fall into. You could say that they fall into the armed forces of Russia, but again, technically they're not part of the Russian military system, but Russia could Absolutely, if push came to shove, be like, yep, no, Wagner's an arm of us. Uh, they get all the protections that they would as a state organization. Or they could let Wagner crash and fall, and then they would probably be announced as unprivileged belligerents because they don't uh, follow a lot of the set rules within the laws of armed conflict. Mm. Fascinating, actually. So how do you think kind of the increased involvement of the PMCs in Syria and the wider world relates to like the privatization of warfare? Uh, there has been a absolute push from authoritarian regimes while more democratic regimes uh, like America have kind of pulled back. Um, America still does absolutely use military contractors all over uh, because it's a lot more cost effective and it politically looks nicer. But when it comes to PMCs specifically, um, more uh, Western-aligned regimes do not like the fact that at any time, if the PMCs were to get a higher higher bid, they could uh, betray or abandon the mission, that they don't have uh, much control over those groups, uh, whether it's operationally or when it comes to information, uh, there's some trust issues between private military companies and the armed forces of those countries, uh, especially like if it comes to America and China, there's issues of, okay, if we give this information to this PMC and after the conflict is over or after their contract is done, what if they get hired by like Russia or China and then there's issues about what intel they would share, what intels they could share, and stuff like that. But when it comes to authoritarian regimes uh, in Africa and Russia, um, the use of PMCs is has been heavily pushed because the PMCs are more incentivized to do what they're told. They're paid a lot more than like the armed forces of any uh, a lot of countries in Africa. 
So uh, like Mali, for example, the army there is not as trained, not as cohesive, not as well equipped as like Wagner is. So the regime there has a lot more incentive because Wagner is not going to coup the Malian government while Mali is paying them to put down the insurgents. Well, well, there still is the risk of the army doing a revolution from above, being like, you know what, we're going to throw you aside and we're just going to rule as a junta. So there, there has been a lot more security provided to authoritarian leaders from Wagner. Uh, and we know that the authoritarian leaders don't care about civilian casualties. In fact, uh, they promote the civilian casualties as a way to uh, put down a psychological iron fist among the people that like, this is what happens when you speak against me. So the privatization of war has absolutely uh, pushed a lot more authoritarian countries to tightening their fist around the people and causing a lot more uh, needless civilian casualties. Hmm. I definitely think um, the rise of PMCs from other parts, obviously we we all know the stories of the initial PMCs used in like the Iraq war early on. But I think this more recent rise of the Russian ones is rather terrifying because it seems like they've been given more of a more of a leash, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe not more of a leash. There's just far less regulation, even on an industry where there was barely any regulation. The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. So, How has the ongoing civil war in Syria contributed to the resurgence of some of the terrorist groups? We've touched on ISIS already in their resurgence in the wider world. But what about the resurgence of some of the groups in Syria? Uh, the groups in Syria, they haven't really had much resurgence as it is already established groups fracturing. Um, mm. The disunity, especially among terror groups to the uh, in the north, it has really caused um, a lot of the groups there to form their own allegiances to certain leaders or certain names or certain groups and you see um, some fights among the warlords uh, up top trying to uh, gain power and legitimacy among themselves being like oh no we're the leaders right now or no we're the leaders Uh, so there hasn't been especially in the north there hasn't been much resurgence of new groups as it is the same groups fracturing or assuming new names or joining other groups um, when it comes to the SDF, uh, there isn't really a resurgence rather than offshoots. Um, uh, there's Wrath of the Olives that uh, forms as a response to Turkish involvement there, and they do campaigns against Turkey. Um, there's still the normal SDF groups that have clashes with uh, Assad every now and then in the south. Uh, when there comes uh, clashes or disagreements over who controls which territory. Um, in the South, there's still a small ISIS presence. There's still a small opposition presence. Um, you see the opposition every now and then stage a protest, take over a city and get crushed by acid. Um, 
when it comes to the south, there's still the Israeli army, there's still the IRGC, sorry, the southwest, there's still the IRGC, there's still the Israeli military, and there's still Syrian government forces there. So it's the continued conflict in Syria has had a much stronger effect on the resurgence of different groups outside of Syria than it has inside of Syria because the groups there are not well equipped enough, well uh, motivated enough in order to cause the resurgence of other organizations. Everyone's just trying to not fall apart. Mm. It all comes back to that kind of stalemate, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the conflict has been going on since 2011. It's only so much you can fight if you look at like, uh, pictures released by the opposition of like the rallies against Assad, you see um, a huge difference between the amount of young people in those rallies rather than elderly people, because a lot of the young people are either currently serving against the Assad regime or dead. Uh, there, there have been hundreds and thousands of casualties, civilian uh, combatants. So there's not really a lot of motivation for people to go on and join those groups um again the opposition just wants us to go us it doesn't want to go it, it's still just the same situation it's just a broken demotivated country that is trying their best to achieve freedom while the iron-fisted uh, leader is using foreign involvement in order to keep himself in power with any cost i think that's the perfect way to summarize it really and you touched slightly there on turkey's involvement and i I want to expand on that definitely so how how did turkey emerge as a major player in this conflict well turkey was uh, significantly affected um when it comes to the syrian civil war there was a huge uh rush of refugees through turkey to europe uh, and I, I'm, if I'm not wrong, Turkey has the highest um, amount of accepted Syrian refugees among all the countries in Europe or even in the region. So uh, domestically, Turkey has been impacted heavily by that. Uh, there's also the existence of uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Yefege, which any kind of Turkish rights organization within the region is uh, going to be quickly announced as a threat to Turkey's existence by uh, Erdogan's government, essentially. Um, the AKP party and the uh, kind of nationalist parties ignoring uh, EE and CHP, which although EE, again, they're very uh, hostile to a lot of Kurdish forces, the CHP since uh, the beginning of the Syrian civil war was against Turkey's involvement in Syria, saying that this will do nothing but uh, kill Turkish citizens. Uh, so although there are ideological connections between the YPG and the PKK, the United States does not recognize the YPG as an arm of the PKK, while Turkey does. And Erdogan, uh, to maintain his hold on power, he relies a lot on fear and authorization of Kurdish groups. Uh, so since the beginning, he saw a opportunity 
to march against the YPG and in order to uh, brand that as Turkey's continued fight against the PKK. Uh, there's also uh, the existence of ISIS. Turkey was one of the only countries that had a uh, hidden, but also not really hidden um, oil trade with ISIS. Um, Turkey did not really try to stop its businessmen or citizens uh, in the parts in the southern parts that shared borders with Syria from purchasing fuel from ISIS. Um, so there, both economically, domestically, um, there was a lot of impact on Turkey when the Syrian civil war started. And uh, ever since the, essentially the hard military engagement of Turkey within Syria, uh, there has been a lot of uh, polarization within Turkey. Again, um, it's been a, a huge subject of pushback from the opposition parties against Erdogan or from the electorate because people, even if you go back to uh, Ataturk and uh, Turkey's post-independence ideology, uh, when it called, uh, when it came to Kemalism, it was heavily uh, isolationist. Uh, what Ataturk really wanted to do was uh, separate Turkey from the Middle East, uh, and that sentiment still remains, uh, even though Kemalism has been on the back pedal and Islamism has really uh, taken over as the dominant ideology. There's still a um, cultural nationalistic sentiments among uh, Turkish citizens that we shouldn't be involved in Syria. That is their fault, uh, th that is their war, that is their fight. And uh, there is no reason for us to let these people into our country uh, in order to waste resources. Uh, there have definitely been racial components to this. Uh, if you ever pay attention to Turkish nationalist spaces, there's a heavy thing about like Syrian refugees recording Turkish girls in the street and then being like, oh my God, she's so pretty. And that usually causes a lot of domestic anger, being like, oh my God, who did you let into this country? Look at what they're saying about our women. Uh, if there's one thing I can recommend to anyone is to never find yourself caught up in Turkish nationalist spaces <laughs> on the internet. Uh, <laughs> literally it, my one piece of advice for life. Uh, it, it causes a significant amount of brain rot. Um, <laughs> recently, uh, during the Turkish elections, uh, when the opposition candidate was talking very heavily and aggressively about uh, how uh, Syrians need to be sent back, how this is an existential fight for Turkey and stuff like that. There was a lot of uh, Syrian activists that were extremely opposed to that because, again, they did not want to be sent to their deaths. Um, they, the situation in Turkey, especially economically, a lot of the problems have been blamed on refugees. Like there is a a strong hike in real estate prices and a lot of people are like oh yeah you know we have a million refugees in this country of course we're not going to have enough houses which is why we need to kick all of them out um and there were some interviews in the streets where um they were gaining some international anger especially in the middle east um interviews with turks in the streets and there was uh this one citizen and again, he's not at all uh, rep representative for 
like the larger Turkish um, kind of attitude towards Syrians, but it still um, demonstrates that the fact the fact that these ideologies do still exist. Um, he was talking about, oh, we're uh, we're a different race from the Syrians, and the Syrians and the Arabs and the Afghans are a inferior race, and the, their brains are not developed. And even though in that group there were people being like, dude, what are you saying? He was like, oh no no, I work as a I work as a genetic scientist. Believe me, I'm studying this in university. <laughs> this is what we study. Uh, so even though like the larger populace doesn't believe this, these um, kind of extremist nationalist sentiments are still there within the country, uh, especially towards Syrians. Um, mm. If you ever talk again, to someone that believes in the Turkish sun theory, then you know you're really onto a real one. I would... <laughs> I, I like to stay away from any kind of Turkish national theory because I can feel my brain, like, recede into my skull. My brain's, like, moving back physically, being like, stop putting this in me. Uh, you, you're killing me, please. Um, again, there's also the kind of internal tensions when it comes to Kurds. Uh, there's the post-conflict resolution because essentially no opposition in Turkey uh, in uh, Syria currently has any idea of what a post-conflict landscape would be like. Like uh, Assad and his allies from the start, their goal was to keep Assad in power. But when it comes to the opposition, it was throw Assad out and then what? And then that, the and then what was a, wasn't, is a significant source of uh, infighting, whether ideologically, whether religiously, um, there is a strong, disunified, fractured belief for what post-conflict resolution would and should be. And that even exists within Turkey because Turkey got involved with those rebel groups. So neither the rebel groups, SDF, Turkey, none of them know what a post-conflict resolution would be like. Uh, the only difference is the rebel groups, SDF, or like the three Syrian army, HTS, uh, their idea of a um, post-conflict state in Syria is a state without Assad. And that is the only unifying thing between them. And have Turkey kind of had any challenges in their role in the Syrian civil war and kind of the duality of being a NATO member alongside that? Uh, yeah, uh, again, if you go back to the Turkish cultural sentiment that it, it is like heavily isolationist uh, and the Chehap had second biggest opposition party from the start being like, you will only kill Turkish sons, essentially. If you uh, get involved in Syria, that has been a heavy uh, disincentivization for Erdogan to put heavy Turkish troop presence within Syria. Uh, Turkish presence within northern Syria has been a lot more equipment to the rebels, has been a lot more like officers training the rebels. It has been a lot more economic, like connecting northern Syria to the Turkish electric grid and uh, trying to establish like a solid governance in northern Syria. But that has been uh, 
the extent of their involvement. They are involved heavily, but it's not a lot of direct troop presence. It is using what rebel forces already have there and trying to make them stronger rather than pouring the Turkish army within Syria, because that would be uh, a direct announcement of war against Assad, first of all, which uh, Turkey wants to avoid, because then you'd have Russia, you'd have Iran, uh, Turkey is a NATO force. Yeah, so Turkey, domestically, it can't really put a lot of direct military presence within Syria. Internationally, it can't put a direct military presence into Syria. And it's uh, stuck in that situation where they are continuing to justify their involvement as we are fighting against the SDF. And the SDF and the Assad regime's military alliance has kind of helped with that. Because it is, if Turkey and Assad were to start negotiations, uh, Turkey would want an immediate immediate end to the SDF and the Syrian army's alliance, which the SDF really does not want to do. And it would cause um, a quick flaring up of uh, military actions again, because there are... Uh, conflicted territories between the SDF and uh, the Syrian army. And if the Syrian army was to be like, okay, yeah, we'll end our alliance with the SDF, the SDF would have a heavy reason to push down and try to relieve tension from the south so it could focus more on the north in uh, Turkey's attacks against it. Hmm. Fascinating. So, and my final question, I think, is... The next 10 years, or say, or 10 years from now, what does Syria look like, in your opinion? I, mm, I, I, when it comes to the future, I don't like to think about one possible future. There is like 100 possible futures. Some of them are more likely than others. Uh, there is always the possibility that Assad could um, establish his hold on the entirety of Syria again. Uh, Turkey completely pulls out. The SDF is defeated. Iran puts even Iran and Russia put even more resources into Syria. Uh, then Assad rules until he dies, and then you know everything goes to hell again. Uh, there is a possibility that he dies, and then everything doesn't go to hell. And his son, for some reason, is more uh, accepting of reform, or there's a revolution from above again. For some reason, it, it, it's just possibilities, not very likely at all. Um, there's I think always we'd be silly to trust that process <laughs> again. <laughs> no, it, it, it would not happen. Uh, it is a like, it is a thing that may happen, but it, it most likely will not. Um, mm. Like I'd say, ninety-five percent chance that it will absolutely not. Uh, there is always the possibility that the war is going to continue within the next ten years. It would not be. It, w- it would be very uncommon, but it would not be unseen. Uh, we've had the Naxalite insurgency in India that has been going on for forty years, so it would not be um, unthinkable that the conflict within Syria could go on for another ten years. Uh, there is always the chance that uh, something would happen internationally, economically, that would flare up. Uh, the tensions in Syria again, especially when it comes to the areas under the control of Assad. Uh, if the Iranian government was to fall within the next 10 years, that would cause a heavy power vacuum on the uh, Syrian government side. 
because Iran is the one of the main heavy allies of the Assad regime. And if there was to um, have a fall in the Iranian government, a civil war in Iran, anything like that, that would cause Iran to significantly pull back resources from uh, Syria that could cause a huge flare-up of tensions within Syria and uh, cause the opposition to push down on the Syrian regime or have um, a lot more internal flare-ups within the areas controlled by the Assad regime. Uh, there's always the possibility that Turkey completely pulls out and the SDF and um, the rebels are crushed. There's always the possibility that Turkey doesn't pull out and the same situation just completely goes on. Uh, there's always the possibility that uh, the rebel groups within the north are going to have even more infighting and whatever kind of monstrosity of an alliance they have right now is just completely going to fall apart and they're going to have a, a lot more infighting and offensives in the north against themselves, which could cause like one group to become the dominant Syrian rebel group in the north. Uh, there could always be the possibility that Turkey doesn't completely pull out and they have a major offensive against the SDF and they put their own kind of proxy party there. Uh, there's like hundreds and millions of possibilities and the way the Syrian conflict is going right now, or there, it's a stalemate without any clear winning, uh, winners, any clear future, uh, with even the UN being like, this is a powder keg waiting to explode. Uh, it is not a very bright future for Syria because the two possible futures are you continue with one of the most despotic regimes in the world, or you continue fighting with no um, clear set idea for what is going to happen after you get rid of them. Um, the philosopher Slavoj Zizek, uh, he had a book um, on the October Revolution in Russia, where he heavily um, talked about and criticized the idea that before the October Revolution, the Russian revolutionaries did not have a set plan for what to do after the revolution. So when the revolution actually happened, you had Lenin and a lot of the other um, belligerents and forces within the country being like, okay, what do we do now? How do we proceed? And that caused a lot of infighting and a lot of um, power grabs. And we, we could see that in Russia, uh, sorry, in Syria right now, because again, when the revolution happened, the only uniting force within the Syrian population was we get rid of Assad. So you have uh, the SDF, which has their own um, ideology, their uh, confederation. You have the Islamist ideologies, various Islamist ideologies, like the difference between HDS and some of the most moderate uh, forces that their main ideology is just get rid of Assad. There's a huge ide ideological difference between them and trying to get uh, them to agree on a set plan is not very likely because even from the start, um, a lot of initial tries to unite the Free Syrian Army and the SDF, it resulted in heavy um, pushback from both sides, heavy violence from both sides. Uh, you had the Free Syrian Army cutting off the heads of representatives that the SDF sent. You had the SDF refusing negotiations with the uh, Free Syrian Army in some occasions. So there is not a united opposition. Uh, it, it's an incredibly fragile situation that could go like a thousand different places within the next year, uh, within the next 10 years even, depending mm -hmm. on how 
uh, each of the countries that are involved in Syria go or how the international situation changes. Because if we had another oil crash, if uh, we had some fighting within OPEC, if anything like that were to happen, uh, a country that has been absolutely economically demolished would have a lot of problems trying to find stability within it, which could cause another flare-up. It seems like there's thousands of different options and they're all pretty dismal for the Syrian people. Sadly, yes. Which has been a recurring theme of this season, I think. Nothing looks good for the Syrian people and hasn't for a long time, which is awful, to be honest. Sadly. And that is the uh, point we are going to end on. So is there anything you'd like to promote, Bardia? Uh, the Modern Insurgent. Uh, check us out on Instagram. We have some yeah. good uh, documentaries. We're going to be putting a lot more stuff out. Uh, the uh, strategy report section. Uh, we're cool. You can always check us out. And yeah, that's it. Perfect. Yeah, you can find us on um, TikTok, uh, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and most importantly, Patreon, where you can subscribe and support us even further. I think it starts at only £2 a month and there are four different tiers. So if you'd like our content and want to support us further, that means the world to us. So thank you for being here for our final episode of the season, Bardia. And thank you. that culminates the first season of Insurgency Unmasked, the Syrian Civil War. I think we've learned a lot and I think we've put out a really good analysis of the conflict. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we will see you next time for season two. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported. reported